Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Well, Thanksgiving is one of those uh, great holidays. Everybody really likes it. The only people I know that don't like Thanksgiving are the turkeys. And so to encourage them, we give them a special seat at our house that's in the center of the table. Now, uh, Thanksgiving is also a time where people like to travel a little bit to get together with relatives. Like, who here traveled more than 50 miles so they had a good Thanksgiving dinner with family? More than 50? Hands up. Okay. How about more than 100? Any 100s? Really? 150. Do I, have, do I have 150? Do I have 150? Do I have two? Do I have two? 250. Who like, okay, you guys win. I hope it was a really good dinner. 860? Hawaii? One way? Well, you didn't give me a ticket. Well, that is great. How about you, Zach? How far did you go? 250 miles. Wow, that is a long trip. Well, Thanksgiving is a good holiday. This morning we are going to be back. How much? What? Where did you go? Rapid City. Wow, that is a long trip. Well, we have a lot of traveling for Thanksgiving. And here at Crosswinds, we're going to be back in studying here the book of Genesis. And we're going to continue our way through this. And we're looking at the life of Joseph. And as we've been working our way through the life of Joseph, um, we've usually been enmeshed in this relationship that Joseph is going back and forth between him and his brothers. And last week, we saw that Joseph's brothers came to town finally. They didn't come to town just for the holidays. They came to town to stay. And we had some a great time studying that. Now, this morning as we pick up in the text we're going to find the text sort of changes perspectives. It changes camera angles. And what it does is it sort of lifts up a little bit, and it gives us a wide-angle lens, and it's going to give us an overview of what happened for the next 17 years once Joseph's brothers moved into town. We're going to see how Joseph managed the nation of Egypt, and then we're going to flip over and see how Joseph's brothers fared while they were there. Now, as we do this study, this is going to be a little different than what we've done before, uh, not because I'm trying to make it different, but because the perspective of the text slightly changes in this part. This first section of text will just essentially tell us how Joseph managed a nation. And if you are somebody who manages people and who works with people, this will have some great actual tidbits of wisdom and insight. And then when we get to the end, It'll get theological. So for all of you who are looking for theological stuff, just wait. It's coming. We'll just get to the end. Let's go ahead and dive in in verses 13 and 14. What does Joseph teach us about wise management is the question. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all of the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. The scriptures told us earlier in the book of Genesis there would be seven years of hard famine. 
And this famine didn't just, just impact the land of Egypt, but it even impacted the land of Canaan itself far away. And in fact, you want to just analogize this in your mind. Think of the dust bowl. I mean, everything is dry. Nothing is growing. And how is Joseph going to handle the people of Egypt to get through this time? And what do we find? Free food programs are not the answer. Really. Free food programs were not the answer. Um, you notice he kept selling them grain until all of their money was gone. In the crisis, he didn't just be given, begin giving handouts. Now, why? You would think that this would be a good time to, like, you have all the grain as the government. Why don't you start giving it to them? A couple thoughts here. Number one, a free food program would destroy people's dignity and self-respect. You see, when people had to purchase their grain, it added value. Not just the grain had value, but they as people had money, and their money was valuable. And the fact they owned money made them valuable. In other words, they realized that they were worth something. Joseph didn't take advantage of them. He didn't take advantage of the situation and overly inflate the price. There's nothing in the text that lets us know that. It's just he continued to charge a fair price for the grain, even though they were in a famine. And by doing this, he let them maintain their dignity and their respect. B. A free food program would foster dependence rather than initiative. Because all of a sudden, he starts giving away their food. Do you think it's going to encourage them to work? Do you think they are going to do anything to help themselves and encourage themselves and encourage others? No. Because if he starts giving them their food, he starts taking away their value and their importance. He discourages their creativity. He discourages their work ethic by just giving them everything they need to survive. So he doesn't do that. He continues to charge a fair price, even in the family, even in the famine. C, a free food program would encourage waste. Because all of a sudden, if food is free, wouldn't you start to waste food because it's free? All of us know what it's like. We've seen these uh, videos of inner city school lunch programs where government, and they've done, they, they do it with the greatest of good, good intent. They'll make sure that these children in, in poor neighborhoods often have a really good school lunch. And they come out from the school lunch line and they have meatloaf and they have carrots and they have green beans and they have potatoes and they have gravy and they have all this great food. And they've gotten it all for free and they sit there pick out it a little bit, then walk over to the garbage can, and what do they do? Dump it, then head out to the vending machine and buy a couple Snickers. But why do they dump it? Because it's free food. It's not valuable food to them. Now, all of us who have teenagers know this in a different area. Here's the standard question. How long will the teenager stay in the shower? until the hot water tank is empty. Isn't that right? 
Meantime, mom and dad are outside the door. And what are we saying? You are wasting the water. Now, why do we say that? Who's paying for the water? Who's paying to heat it? We are. So we're like, no, you don't want to waste it because it's valuable. Are they paying for the water? Absolutely not. So it encourages waste. But just leave that shower run until it's dry. And that's the way it goes. So what we find is this. Joseph, even in the famine, continued to charge a fair price for the grain. And it was actually a good thing. Because if he just started giving everybody free food, it would discourage them from working. It would, they wouldn't think they had any value, nor did they need to contribute any value because everything came for free. So it would actually destroy their dignity and their self-respect. Now the story continues. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock, if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for their horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. Now, you would think this would be a good time for a free government food program. They have no more money. So now is the time that we should just start giving it all out for free. But Joseph says no to that. And this is what goes on. When people can't pay, it's often better to barter than to give. When people can't pay, it's often better to barter than to give. Joseph says, you have a bunch of animals. Why don't you give me your animals and I will give you your grain? And some people have looked at this and they say, well, this is actually just Joseph's attempt, attempt to force them into permanent poverty by taking away their animals. I see it as the opposite. I see this as actually part of Joseph's benevolence. Put yourself imaginatively in this situation. You're in a famine. There is no grain. You are farmers. It is, now, for farmers, for us, we have tractors, we have combines, that kind of stuff. When we are done, we put them in the shed, we leave them fueled up with diesel, make sure the hydraulic fluid is topped off, and we just wait to next year and then get them out. But if you are a farmer in this economy, your farm equipment was horses, it was animals, cows, goats, sheep, you cannot just leave them in a barn for a year and take them out next year. You have to constantly feed them to maintain them. The biggest drain on your resources is taking care of your animals. So Joseph says, you know what, guys? You give me your animals. I'll take care of your animals, and I will give you food. Therefore, your cost of existence goes way down. Because the only mouths you have to feed are the ones of your family in your home. Now, it doesn't say this directly in the text, but I believe that later on, that what happened is Joseph somehow either gave them use of those animals or somehow they got those animals back. But during this time of crisis, he took care of them for them. For them. 
the other thing I want you to, to see from this is he still didn't give free lunch or free food. They had something of value. They exchanged for something of value. They exchanged their animals for grain. What this does is it continues to maintain their dignity, continues to maintain their self-respect. Now, how does this apply directly into our lives today? Well, the idea is that maybe if we are ever in a situation or working with somebody where they don't have the money to pay for something, see if you can barter for them, barter with them for something so they can maintain their dignity, value, and self-respect. Let me give you an example. Say you're a single mom and you're on a very tight income, as most single moms are, and you go to start your minivan and it doesn't turn over. And you bring it to the mechanic, and the mechanic says, you need a new starter. You're like, well, I don't have money to pay for that. I don't have any money left. So the mechanic turns around and says to you, can you break Christmas cookies? You know, in our family, we usually have a ton of people over. We do all kinds of Christmas cookies. I don't have a chance to do them this year. I'll tell you what, you bake Christmas cookies of this proportionate amount, and I will put the starter in. So we have a barter system. And all of a sudden, the single mom's like, you know what? I can still maintain my value. I'm still worth something. I can still help people. And so she maintains her value by doing that. Now let me go ahead and um, just continue the story and see how this goes. When that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Now, why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we, will be, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate." So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt from Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields, because the famine was severe on them. And the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he made them servants of them. He made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh, and they lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. They have no more money. They have no more livestock. But they still don't get free handouts. Interestingly, you notice who proposed this solution? Earlier, Joseph proposed the solution of, I'll buy your animals from you. He didn't propose this solution. You see, if Joseph had said, tell you what, I'll buy you, and you can be my servants, how well do you think that would have gone over with them? Do you think they would have rebelled? Like we were forced into slavery by Joseph? But Joseph didn't do that. You tell me what you would like to do. And they came up with the idea of selling themselves and their land to the government to work for the government. It was their idea so they accepted it. 
Joseph didn't force it upon them. I told you this is filled with lots of wise management strategies. That's true. That's what he did here. And here is the interesting part. When people are at the end of their resources, it is usually better for them to voluntarily give themselves to full-time government or private service than to simply become a government dependent. Now, that is an interesting line. But notice what they did. This is essentially, they said, we have nothing left. We will sell ourselves into working for our country. So we are adding value and service to our society. Because all I have left is my bodies, my life, and my land. We will serve the Pharaoh. And in this way, since there was no free handout given, their dignity was maintained. Their self-respect was maintained. The idea that society is to function by the giving and receiving of value, not by sheer just handouts, was maintained. Now let me just float this idea across. How does this apply to us today? Sometimes people end up in situations where they've lost all their money. They have nothing left. So what do they do? They sell their car. <laughs> That's their animals. And that gets them a little further. And maybe then they still can't turn the situation around. And all they have left, so to speak, is themselves. What would be an appropriate application of this verse? Maybe rather than just being a dependent and saying, people are supposed to care for me, is to say, I should sign up for the National Guard. Or maybe I should sign up to serve in the military. Because that way I can still serve our society. I can give value. And the government will take care of providing my food. Take care of providing my housing. Take care of my basic needs. Because that is essentially what we have going on in this situation. Now, I want to just pause for a moment. Just to make sure something is clear. I am not saying that all government programs are wrong. I'm not anti-social security. I'm not, don't go that direction. I'm not saying that benevolence is wrong. Of course I'm not saying any of that. All I'm trying to point out is Joseph was very intentional about people trying to maintain their sense of value, their sense of dignity, and the idea is that there was an exchange of something. There's an exchange of either money for food or there's an exchange of a bartering exchange of livestock for food or, hey, I'll give the service of my life for food. So that kind of value was maintained. To just all of a sudden start giving free handouts is not good. It destroys self-worth. Now, we all know sometimes how this works in our economy. We know that we're in a, a culture that encourages entitlement, where people say, well, I'm down on my luck, so the government should pay for me. And I'm down on my luck, so then I should just sit home. Now, Joseph would be against that. Do whatever you can to be able to give value, not just receive value. It goes both ways. Now let's look at how things flip around and they go the other direction. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. 
Now, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves, and for your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, For you have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statue concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. Now the land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Now what we find is that Joseph instituted a 20% flat tax bracket. And that's essentially what he did. What he said is, um, if, when you make your grain, you give 20% to the government. Now, I didn't know what to think of this, so I did a little bit of research on how this compared to what was going on in other societies and other countries of the ancient world at this time. It was not uncommon at that time for the grain tax to be 40% in other countries. Some countries was even as high as 60%. So what we find is Joseph had an extremely low flat tax that he charged on the profit they made when they worked for him. Verley actually quite generous. No additional property taxes on top of that, no additional income taxes, no additional federal taxes, no additional Iowa state taxes, and it goes on and on forever. Now, what we find also is that Joseph didn't penalize the success of his people. You notice that? Think about this. In our country, the more money you make, the more taxes you pay. Correct? That's not the way it worked for Joseph. That would de-incentivize work. Well, why should I work harder? Because then I just pay more to the government. I was talking with my wife last night about this, and um, her father, um, he told when he was working, before he died a few years ago, he told the guy he was working for, would just pay me a flat amount. Don't pay me by my hours. If I need to work more hours, that's fine. I'll do it for free. Now, you can't get away with that today. But he said, if I make too much more money, that'll put me into another tax bracket, and then I just give it all to the government, and I lose it anyway. So for him, it was like, you know, I don't want to make that much money. I actually want to get less money from my employer. The other thing I noticed, not just that he had a flat tax bracket, but he had a low taxes. Now, the idea is that he has this low taxes. You get to keep 80% of what you make, what that does is it allows a lot of reinvestment, a lot of spending, and therefore all of a sudden people start to make even more money, which then makes a larger 20% that goes to the government. Now, by the way, this is bordering in the field of economics. I don't have a degree in economics. I'm a pastor. That's all I am. And I just happen to be reading through the text, and these things just keep coming to mind because it's right there, a 20% flat tax rate that doesn't go up if you make more money. In fact, it was so um, popular, the way that Joseph managed things, that Moses writes in this, that these management procedures, most of them are still in establishment to this day. So Moses is writing 400 years later or more after Joseph, and yet this was so successful that they maintained it in that nation that long. 
The other thing I want you to notice is this. Joseph was committed to serving the people, not the people serving Joseph. And the, they felt that way. How did they respond to Joseph uh, asking for 20% of what they made and him providing for them? They were grateful. They were filled with thankfulness. You have saved our lives was their response. In fact, the idea is that Joseph was the face on their $5 bill. He was a national hero. We have the Lincoln Memorial. They probably had the Joseph Memorial. Everybody looked up to him. Everybody admired him, the way he managed things. Because it was not about Joseph getting rich and Joseph getting power. It was very clearly about him serving the people for their best. Now, that sort of ends the section on what happens with Joseph and how he managed this nation of Egypt in a crisis. Now what happens is the camera zooms up and flips over. And it's going to zoom back down in on Jacob's sons in the land of Goshen. How did they handle this famine and the seven subsequent, 17 subsequent years that followed? Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it. They were fruitful, and they multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the, the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. Now contrast this from what we saw earlier. Earlier, the average person in Egypt was being forced to sell their land because things were not going well. But Jacob's sons, who were living in the land of Goshen, which was part of the outskirts of Egypt, they were doing extremely well, and they were actually buying land. It says they gained possessions. So they didn't just buy land. I mean, they bought houses. They bought cars, SUVs. I mean, they probably had a bunch of those boats that are down at the marina, those ones with the, the big wakeboard fly racks on them. I mean, they had those kind of things. They had family jet skis, motorhomes. I mean, they are doing incredibly well. Not only that, but it says they were fruitful and they multiplied. People are thinking there must be something with the water in Goshen because every married woman is pregnant, like constantly. They're having kids all over the place. They may only have one service at church, but they have to have two services at the nursery because it has that many people in it. I mean, the family vehicle is not a minivan. It is a 15-passenger van or a small bus. The Awana ministry is packed out. This is what it is like for them. They are completely fruitful. They are multiplying. They are rich. Everything is going incredibly well. And Jacob, the patriarch of the family that everyone wondered, and he wondered, well, I'm going to die any time now. I'm always so old. He lasted another 17 years, finally dying at the ripe young age of 147. Now, let me just put a little aside here. I just thought about this. You know, Jacob cared for Joseph for 17 years at the beginning of his life, didn't he? But then it flipped. Joseph cared for Jacob for 17 years at the end of his life. 
Now, I just think this is interesting because what we find is the roles reversed and the children took care of the parents. And by the way, that is extremely Christian to do. That is what the Bible tells us is the way we live our Christian lives. Let me just throw this in. Some of you guys know, I'm just going to say, you know that I like to throw this in. It's important stuff. Look what it says in 1 Timothy 5.8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That as Christians, we provide for members of our own household, and that's our extended family. And then there's a special word that comes in here a little bit later in that Timothy passage dealing with women and how they care for aging relatives. And that's generally because very, women are very good at compassion. If any believing woman has relatives that are widows, by the way, the Greek word there is widows, but in the classical Greek it's widows or widowers. So it is not just one gender. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows or widowers, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it can so it may care for those who are truly widows. And that's what Joseph did. He cared for his elderly father for the last 17 years of his life. And as Christians, we are to do the best we can to care for our elderly parents. It's one of our hallmarks and distinctives of the faith. Now, it gets exciting. Let's look at what were some of Joseph's last words. Joseph writes, it, it writes this, And when the time drew near for Israel, that Israel must die. Israel, by the way, is the same as Joseph. He called his son, same as Jacob, excuse me, that Israel must die. He called his son Joseph, and he said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Jacob is 147, and he is close to death. And he calls Joseph in, and he says, I need you to swear to me. Make a solemn pro promise to me. Put your hand under my thigh, which personally I think is a little scary. Keep your hand to yourself. I prefer that we shake, but... That's the way they made solemn covenants and solemn promises and vows. You put your hand under someone's thigh back then. You promise me that when I die, you will not bury me in the land of Egypt. That you will bury me in the land of Canaan, in the field of Bimachpelah, where Abraham and Sarah, Grandpa and Grandma are buried, and where Isaac and Rebekah my parents, my mother and my father are buried. That is where I want to be buried. Now, why does Jacob do this? Jacob's sons think that Egypt is the best thing since sliced bread. They were struggling and dying in a famine. Now they are filthy, stinking rich. They are incredibly fruitful. Everybody calls Egypt home. 
It's the most wonderful place to be. But Jacob says, Egypt is not our home. We are only here temporarily. I want to be buried in the land of Canaan because I don't want people to think that this is where I belong or this is where we belong. Bury me back in Canaan. And then it struck me. Isn't there an incredible parallel here between Jacob's desires and thoughts and our desires and thoughts? Because just like Jacob, many of us have had a family and children, and we've been successful. Uh, we've had houses, and we've had cars, and we've had boats, and all kinds of things, success that God has given us right here in Iowa, where we live. And after a while, we start to think that this world is our home. This world is where we belong. But the scriptures are exceedingly clear. This world is not our home. We are only passing through. We are going to our promised land someday. And it's not here. Look what the scriptures say. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. The Scriptures challenge us that as we go through this life, maybe you're living an extremely blessed life, so you're wooed into thinking this life is all there is. Or maybe you're living a very hard life, and so you think, man, everything is very difficult and they could never get better. The Scriptures say this world is not all there is. Christ will return and ultimately He will set up a new heavens and a new earth which is the place where we actually belong. Look what the Scriptures say about this new heavens and new earth and Christ's return. Number one, Christ hasn't returned yet because He is giving more people time to repent. Because people say Christ isn't returning. Life will go on this way forever, and the Scriptures are exceedingly clear. No, Christ will return. This world will not stay the same. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count sullenness but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The reason that Christ has not returned is only because He is giving more people time and opportunity to repent. It's not because He's forgotten. Number two, when Christ returns, it'll either be our judgment or our joy. Malachi 4 says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stalls. That when Christ returns, it'll either be the moment of great judgment or great joy. Judgment for those who do not know Christ and joy for those who do know Christ. And this needs to be a good reminder to us that we need to continually share the good news of Jesus Christ with our friends 
and with our neighbors. Because apart from Jesus Christ, when Christ returns is the ultimate moment of like bad news, not the ultimate moment of good news. Number three, when Christ returns, it'll be the day of our reward. Scriptures say in Revelation 22, 12, look, I am coming soon and my reward is with me. I will give to each person according to what they have done. The Bible says that when Christ returns, He will reward everyone in the next life based on how we lived in this life. That every time you have turned away from sin and said no to the pleasure of sin, that you will be rewarded with a greater joy in the new heavens and the new earth. That every time we have given sacrificially for Christ and His kingdom in this life, the Scriptures say that is laying up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and thieves will not break in and steal and destroy. That ultimately, we're making the best possible investment with our earthly monies now by sending it ahead because it'll come back in our ultimate retirement plan in the new heavens and the new earth. That our God is not just a God who delights to give us salvation, but He is a God who delights to reward us in eternity, the new heavens and new earth, for how we have lived now and how we have lived today. Number four. What matters in the future is not the things we had in this life, but how we lived. 2 Peter 3.11 Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? In other words, the reality is the stuff we have in this world will not go with us, but the holiness and the godliness with which we lived in this life, will have ramifications in the next life. In Colossians 3, 1 through 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. The simple point is this. Just as Jacob realized that Egypt was not his home, and not their family's home, and that ultimately they were going to go to their promised land in the future. This world and this earth is not our home. Live in such a way that we look forward and live for the new heavens and the new earth, because that is where we are ultimately going. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and we just want to Thank you for how you have been so rich and so kind and so gracious to many of us. And we want to confess that it is easy to think that this life is all there is. And the Scriptures remind us that to constantly live here, looking forward to the new heavens and new earth and being with Christ forever. Also, sometimes when we go through this life and we go through times that are really hard and really difficult, we say the same thing. We think this life is all there is, and this life is not all there is. But ultimately, when you return, Jesus, because of your incredible grace, we will be rewarded for how we have lived. We will be uh, recipients of incredible joy 
because of your incredible grace. And we look forward, ultimately, to the moment when we will be with you forever. And we ultimately look forward to the new heavens and new earth where we will reign with you and serve under you for all of eternity because that is our true home. And all God's people said, Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.